the exact opposite of what God had told them to do. It just seems so unbelievable, right? How, how can I even relate to that? I can never see myself doing this today. Uh, well, this morning, my hope is that as we dig deeper into this passage, we'll, we'll see that actually it's not all that unbelievable at all. That if we pay attention to what's going on, there's actually a very relevant and real warning to us today. Uh, but before we do that, let's do a quick recap of where we've been so far, right? Uh, remember, I was trying to, I'm trying to paint this as like a romance story. Uh, so... Uh, just as Moses has spent 40 days on top of the mountain right, ratifying the wedding details, you know, organizing the wedding, so to speak, for the people. And God, the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, the 43 more detailed laws on, on how Israel is to live out their radical justice, mercy to the oppressed. Moses has just received the blueprints of the tabernacle, right? The, the wedding tent, the wedding house that, that God and his people will come and meet together and dwell together. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw how Moses had received the instructions on how to dress Aaron, the high priest of God's people, and instructions on how to ordain him, all right, to make Aaron's role official on behalf of God's people, right? So like the wedding clothes, this is how we're going to dress. And so the, the, the stage is set, Right? The, the, the vows, the, the, Israel has already said yes to God in terms of agreeing to marry God. God is preparing the, the wedding vows, the honey honeymoon suite is ready, as well as the wedding clothes. And then it builds up to this, this event, the golden calf story. And so let's start from the beginning. Now, Moses has been long in coming down from the mountain, right? How long was he there for? 40 days and 40 nights. That is a long time, right? Uh, and, and just put your sh your, yourselves in the shoes of the Israelites there. As they're waiting for Moses at the bottom of the, of the mountain, what, what are they seeing? Do you guys remember what they saw? As Moses goes doo -doo 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 up the mountain, down comes this massive fiery cloud that envelops the whole top of the mountain, right? What are you thinking? Um, and Moses has been up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And so you can, you can, you can sort of empathize with what the people are, trying to, are saying here, right? They, they go up to Aaron and they say, is it not? Oh, not on, my fault. We're good? Oh, it is on. Okay, the back screen's not working, sorry. Okay, let me go back then. Ugh. When the people saw... What was happening? They said to Aaron, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Now, of course, that, that's a very shocking thing to say for, for us who know our Bibles, but I just want us to, to think about this question. They want to make gods who will go before them. Who are they actually trying to replace here? Anyone? Any ideas? Who are they replacing? Moses. Right? That was, that was new to me when, when I was like studying this. Oh, I always thought they were trying to replace God, which, which you know, hold out on to that thought. That, that's not completely wrong. But their immediate reaction, the, the, the event that kicks them off into this new direction is actually, we don't know what happened to this man, Moses. 
So who's going to go before us anymore? Let, let's make God to go before us in place of Moses. Now, see, the ambiguity is more obvious in, in the Hebrew text, right? Because in English, it's like, it's God's. And we're like, well, it's clearly God. But the word in Hebrew is actually the word El, right? It's where you get Elohim from, El. Uh, and at its core, El just simply means power, right? So, for example, judges are sometimes called El. Uh, kings are sometimes called El as well, right? It's just a, a position of power. So, of course, you know, uh, when used in the plural sense, Elohim, uh, that has a concept that, 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 that is a power, the ultimate power, a God, so to speak. So, one way we can read this is the people saying, Moses, the man, is gone. We don't know what happened, what happened to him. Now, let's make a power to go in place of Moses, to go before us. Now, now why would they say that, right? Because let's think about it. What, what is Moses' role, right? So far, what, we have, what have we seen? Moses is the man that stands between God and the people, right? Right? Moses leads the people. Moses is the conduit through which the people connect to God. And remember, what, this, is the, this is something that the people want. Uh, we actually didn't cover this uh, in our sermon series. But uh, just, be, just as the Ten Commandments are given, what happens immediately? The people are terrified. They hear the voice of God and they say, no, 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 God, don't talk to us anymore. We're too scared. You're too overwhelming. And so the people send Moses in their place to go up to the mountain. You go. You, 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 you talk to God and then you tell us what God wants. Right? God is too overwhelming for them. And so th this is why they, they need this, this middleman, <laughs> this power to go before them because... They, they can't access God directly. They're too scared of God. And so at this point, the, the rationale seems, well, well, we just need a new connection to God, right? We need a new power to go before us. And then what happens? Aaron, the high priest, he says, okay, give me the gold of your wives, your sons and daughters that they're wearing and bring them to me. And let, let, let's stop here again. There's a point of irony here, right? Because why did the people want to build a calf again? It's, it's, it's because they want a connection with God, right? And so as they use this gold to craft this thing to connect with God, what was the gold meant for originally? Do you guys remember from a couple of weeks ago from Pete's sermon? In Pete's sermon, the, there was a line that said the gold was to use for a particular purpose. Do you guys remember? It was to build something. Or even in our life groups, we've mentioned this. The altar, yep. Uh, uh, not just the altar, but all the furnishings of the temple, the priests, uh, garments, the ephod, and, and all that, right? So, can you see the irony with that? The people want to use all this gold like that they plundered from the Egyptians to make this thing to connect to God. And all the while... Moses is up there on the mountain getting plans from God on how to connect with God, right? This is what you're going to do with God. You're going to build me a tabernacle, an altar, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, clothes to wear so that you can connect with me. And all the while, the people are making up 
their own way to connect with God. And then, the, and then Aaron takes the gold and casts it into the shape of a calf and fashions it with a tool, right? What's the picture here? Casting, fashioning, carefully and intentionally crafting it, right? Hold that thought for next week. But after seeing this calf, which, and, and the they here, uh, the they here probably refers to a specific group of people who are, are demanding that Aaron make this calf. They say, these are your gods, these are your Elohim, your powers, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And again, again, there's an ambiguity here so, that, that we might miss. Uh, t- today we might immediately jump in and say, look, they're clearly saying this cow is God. How can they be so ridiculous? But when we consider the ancient Near East, it, it's not that clear cut because often the calf represents the place on which the God would sit on. It's sort of like a, a mobile throne, so to speak, right? Uh, it's, it's, if you sit on a cow, it's like you're powerful, you're royal. It, it's that sort of imagery. And so... If this calf is meant to be a throne that God is to sit on, well, again, think back a few weeks ago. Is there something that we've come across in the the book of Exodus that reminds us of this, right? Is there a throne that God sits on somewhere? Anyone? In the book of Exodus? Pete Sermon? What's, what, what's one of the items that, that are listed with instructions on how to build at the center of the Holy of Holies? Altar? Close, close. The cherubim, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Exactly, thanks, Jeremy. Oh, you really should start a new group, Jeremy. I really love how it's going. Um, at the center of the, holy, the most holy place is this Ark, this box, right? which holds the tablets of the covenant, uh, Aaron's staff, and it's got this cherubim, right? And that's where God will descend down into when once a year Aaron enters that most holy place to make atonement for the people. That is the place where God will come down and sit between the two cherubim on the ark, right? God already has a place, a throne to sit on, the ark of the covenant, and so with all this ambiguity, like in the English it seems so clear-cut, but in the Hebrew, I think it's deliberately ambiguous. You could actually argue that, hey, the people actually just want what God wants. Can you see that, right? They need a connection with God, right? They think their connection with God is dead, Moses. And so, well, let's make a new power, a new connection, uh, a, an idol to, to be that connection not only Moses, but also the temple, right? This idol, you know, kill three birds with the same stone, right? Moses, temple, Ark of the Covenant, boom, in this calf. And so what happens next? Aaron sees this calf and he builds an altar in front of the calf and announces, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And again, a festival to the Lord. Have we heard that before? When have we heard the festival to the Lord before? 
at the end of what section did we look at the festivals? No? Okay. Well, immediately after the Ten Commandments, Moses goes up to the mountain and gets more laws, 43 laws. And at the end of that whole section of how to uh, treat the foreigner, the widows, the servants and slaves, comes celebration. God demands that the people are to celebrate, right? It ends with celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. Celebrate at set times, right? Celebrate coming out of Egypt. Celebrate when you're just starting to harvest. Celebrate when you've finished harvesting, right? But now the people are doing it according to their own schedule. But even here you can argue, okay, look, that, that's still kind of what God wants, right? To celebrate God together, connection to God, festival to God, right? And up until this point, God seems to sort of agree because God actually hasn't become angry just, just enough yet, right? He doesn't get angry until the next day. So what happens the next day? They begin the celebration. Verse 6. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And it's at this point that God has had enough. And you might be wondering, what? This is the last straw? What? Not even like golden calf? What's going on? Well, we might ask the question, who are they now sacrificing to? God's not there. God's up on the mountain. Maybe this is the point that they've stopped seeing the calf as the conduit to God and, and making the calf to be God himself, maybe, right? I mean, that, that, that is God's interpretation of that in the next verses, right? But then there's this last bit that gives us a hint. They sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. And it's that last phrase, indulge in revelry that we need to focus on. Because this is actually one very rare word in the Hebrew text. And when we see it, it refers to something dodgy going on, right? Something dodgy with sexual overtones. And so some translations may say, the people got up to engage in sexual immorality. Now, why might this be a big deal for the Lord? Well, I think this is actually the final piece of the puzzle. <laughs> Through these chain of events, this has finally devolved into a complete picture of something. A complete picture of what pagan worship looks like. A golden calf, a symbol of God's presence, now perhaps becoming the God itself, right? Something that God told him explicitly, you must never make me into the image of anything, anything created. They're having festivals at a time of their own choosing. They're sacrificing in ways that completely ignore God's word. And now they're engaging in sexual immorality. Because the nations of the ancient world, that's normal. Worship and sex go together. You would have temples with prostitutes all around the temple, right? The idea is that you would engage in your sexual immorality at the doorstep of these temples so that you would arouse the gods and, 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 and make them bless you as a result. It, it, it's this despicable picture. But you know what? God has also something to say about sex. 
and coming to him to worship him. Uh, does anyone remember where that comes from? No, don't worry, I'll tell you. Uh, well, basically, it's don't do it. <laughs> In chapter 19, after a long description of how the people are to prepare themselves for the Lord coming down to the mountain to meet with him, this is what Moses tells them. Prepare yourselves for the third day. The third day is when the Lord will come down and appear on the mountain. Abstain from sexual relations, right? Now, let's just be clear. God is not anti-sex here, right? Sex within marriage is a good thing, but remember the context. They're about to meet their God, in a matter of speaking, right? Remember what people have come to expect from worship as part of their ancient context. And so God is not, not just saying... Don't have sex with a prostitute as you come to worship me. But God is saying, don't even have sex. Don't even be intimate with your husband or wife before meeting the Lord. Because God does not want to be even remotely compared to those pagan practices over there. I am holy. I am different. Honor that. You are my holy people. But now the people just completely ignore that. They're not just celebrating by being intimate with their own spouses, right? They're committing the same sexual immorality as the pagan nations do. So Israel's idolatry, their rebellion against God is now total and complete. How did we get here? All it took was 48 hours. And so this is the point that I want us to stop and consider how this passage might speak to us today. Because again, I, I don't want us to read the golden calf story and say, oh, how stupid are these people? I could never do that. But, also, but, but to know that we are actually susceptible to a similar downward spiral if we're not careful. And so I just want to break down some of these steps that occur and ask ourselves the question, have we ourselves struggled in a similar situation before, right? Is there an area, uh, one of these steps that we might struggle with right now, today? Well, let, let's start at the beginning. How does this whole chain of events start? Well, basically, it starts with fear, doesn't it? Fear and a lack of trust in God. See, things don't go the way they anticipated, right? 40 days, still no Moses. Oh, no, what are we going to do, right? Well, I'll tell you what they, won't, what they didn't do. They didn't look back at what God had already done for them. They didn't rely on the proven evidence that God has always come through from them, no matter how dire the situation, feeding them in the desert with manna, with water, even meat in the desert. But instead they go, uh-oh, we're in panic mode now. We better take matters into our own hands. Let's, let, let's do it ourselves. Let, let's fix this problem ourselves. And so let's just stop and think for a moment. Am I someone who is quick to jump into panic mode when things aren't going right? That I'm just not great when it comes to patiently waiting for the Lord, that I need to quickly jump into action and, and, and rush a big decision and, and just achieve and, and, and do something with my own hands without, without coming to God in prayer first, without consulting God's Word, without asking our brothers and sisters First, right? Well, where do we go in a moment of crisis? Is it to God? Do I stop in my anxiety to, to remember God's character, right? God's goodness, His faithfulness that we know so well from Sunday school? 
or do we just turn to trusting ourselves or something else or someone else, right? That's the first step in the downward spiral, fear, not trusting in, the, in, in God. But next, what's the next step in this process? We see that even if we are generous in saying that the people are actually what, are wanting what God wants, right? Connection to God. Then what's the problem? <laughs> the problem is that they just haven't listened to God's word, right? You can say they want the same things as God, but they've completely missed the whole point. They're not listening to God. And let's just, let's just be um, realistic here. Like, what is the word of God that they've agreed to live by at this point? It's not even the 43 laws, right? Because that was given as Moses was up in the mountain. They, they, they haven't gotten that yet. But what they have heard and agreed to were simply the Ten Commandments. That's all they said. Yes, we'll do that. Right? Right after the Ten Commandments, they said yes. But even these simple commandments they've heard, they promised to keep, and they've seemingly forgotten so quickly. And I think this is, might be the scariest um, part of the story for me as I read this, because even with good intentions, when it's done without hearing and living out the Word of God, that can set us off in a really dangerous spiral. That's what we see here. So, for example, on a church level, it would be like, you know, well, my goal as a church leader, I want to get as many people into our church as possible. That's a great goal, right? But then what, what happens if I don't bother trusting that the gospel itself is enough, right? And so we, we tack on other things that, oh, this is what's going to draw people to our church. Yeah, we, we need uh, world-class coffee. We, we need uh, smoke machines. Yeah, 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 we need that. Yeah, let, 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 let's spend more money into uh, better slideshows, right? Or maybe worse, you know, the gospel is a bit offensive. How about we just leave that bit out? We'll just focus on Jesus' love, right? And so we make it more appealing to other people. Right? That, that, that's, that's one way that, you know, not paying attention, not hearing, not putting God's word first can slowly lead a church down. But that, 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 that's a macro level. But what about us individuals, Right? Are we seemingly looking like we're, we're doing the right things, we're, we're on the right track, we meet together on Sundays, we, we give money to church, uh, we give money to ICC, right? But the question is, is God's Word marinating within us day by day that our, our primary uh, guidance, the, the force, the, the person that I'm listening and hearing the voice of the most is, is actually God's Word? and that is dwelling in us. Is, is that true of us? Or are we just doing the shell of religion, just doing the right things, right? What is the voice that is truly directing us? Because something happens in this story when they don't listen to God. Something else comes in to take the place of God. And that is, they simply follow the pattern of the world around them, right? It's, it's the warning that we've heard in the book of Romans by Paul, right? right? Conforming to the pattern of the world around us. It comes to worship, but it's also not just worship, right? And it's not just, for us, especially for us Christians, we understand that worship isn't just Sundays. Worship is all of our lives, how we honor our God with all of our, our days and our hours, right? And while the world around us aren't doing things that we might label as anti-God, like they're not worshiping statues of gold or gold cow, 
there are so many other subtle ways that the world around us is, is pulling us to live in ways that are contrary to trusting God, right? Messages like, look, you really don't need to worry about what anyone else thinks. You know, if they're offended by that, pfft, stuff them. Right? Be guided by your passion, your desire. You do you. And if you don't like it, then don't do it. Right? If you do like it, keep going on because you're worth it. As opposed to Paul saying, though I am free I, and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became a Jew to win the Jews. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I don't know if you guys have ever thought like um, I did several years ago when I was still working for CPA uh, as a data analyst. I would sometimes think, think to myself, you know, I'm doing all this to try and like evangelize in my workplace, but wouldn't it be so much easier to make an impact on the gospel if I, you know, were further up the food chain at work? Maybe if I was a manager or, or a senior manager, then people would more likely hear me out, right? You can see just how subtle that is, right? I was being led by the ways of this world that if you want to be effective for the kingdom of God, then you need status and power, right? Instead of trusting that God uses the weak to prove God's power, right? Are the ways of the world, is that impacting? Is that having more of a pull to us than, than God's word actually does in our worship, in our service to God? Maybe it's our moral compass, right? Our sense of right and wrong, more easily persuaded by our world standards. Everyone does this. What's the big deal? Why can't the church get on with the times, right? What are the areas that you guys need to reflect on, right? Being influenced by the ways of the world. And just to throw it in there, I'm going to add a bonus step four, because it's not really a, it's not really a step, but it's more like an overarching heart issue with Israel's story. And that is, fundamentally, the people don't want to worship the I am who I am, right? That's God's name. I am who I am. You can't define me. You can't put him in a box. You can't give him an, an, a name to describe him so that you can fully comprehend him, that, right? God will be who he is, and that's it. Because you can imagine what the people have felt during their time in the desert, right? God just randomly, seemingly, rains down bread for he from heaven six days a week, and then arbitrarily, on the seventh day, He withholds it, right? God doesn't provide water for them in a steady and predictable way, but they go for long stretches without finding any water when, when the people start to panic, God isn't like all the other gods. God does things so differently. He just, poof, suddenly appears in a cloud, and you have to follow this cloud along in the desert, right? You know, wherever the, the cloud goes, you go, okay? And this God just took our leader Moses up to a mountain, covered up with a fiery cloud for 40 days, and we haven't heard a single thing from him. This God is so unpredictable, and so can you imagine them thinking, you know what, I don't like a God that's so unpredictable. I want to introduce an element of control back into my relationship with this God. And so let's make a calf. 
Let's make this calf that we can move around wherever we want, whenever we want. Let's make a God who is tangible so that I can have something to look at, bow down to, to wrap my head around. Let's hold festivals when we want to have a drink and have fun. Uh, instead of when God tells us to. Let's do worship like all the other nations around us so that we can have an excuse to indulge in sexual immorality and call that serving God. We don't want I am who I am. We want a God that we can control, a God that does what we want Him to do. Let's stick God in a box so that we can handle Him. And so a question for us. What's our reaction when we come across a side of God that we just don't understand? Maybe we don't agree with, right? Something in the Bible that seems really unfair. Man, that sounds sexist. Man, that f- I feel ashamed to, to, to read that. What do we do with that, right? Do we write it off and say, nah, God was wrong to say that? Do we ignore it as if it's not part of the Bible? Or do we say, look, God, you are God. I am not God. Help me to come in humility to try and understand what this means, right? Even if I don't fully comprehend your word in this passage, help me to accept that I am not God, you are God, to keep trusting in you, to keep wrestling with your word, to find answers and not just leave it, right? Or what about personally in our lives? What, it, what, what happens when, when God throws a curveball into our lives? Things don't go according to plan. Your hopes and dreams dashed. Tragedy strikes close to your heart. Do we have the faith to say, Lord, I have no idea why you're doing this. I'm in so much pain right now. I think I might actually be really angry with you, Lord. But Lord, you are God and I am not. Help me to keep trusting you through my pain? Are we people who fully accept what it means to follow the God who is the I am who I am? Now, as I close, I just want to acknowledge this has been a bit of a heavier, darker sermon than usual. And I'm going to actually do something quite controversial here, so please don't fire me as your pastor. But I'm actually not going to end this sermon on a big push on grace. Right, I don't think there's any newcomers here today, but if I were, I'll be more careful in, into saying you know it's not about doing stuff right, um, because yes, while I, I agree, we do need to be reminded that we 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 currently live in grace. We are forgiven in Christ. The victory is yours in Christ. No, you don't earn salvation. It's not about guilt tripping you. I don't want us to to go home feeling guilty and ashamed of our failings, but I want to give put this reminder in a brief way, right? Grace does come, right? Grace does come. We look to the end of Exodus, there's massive grace there. But for today, I just want us to sit with this today. And that is, as we read the story of the golden calf, I don't want us to dismiss it, saying it's too ridiculous, I could never do that, and move on. But I want us to see how dangerous it is when we don't wait on God, when we don't listen to God's word, when we simply follow the pattern of the world around us, and when we don't want to recognize God as the I am who I am. And so let us today, this week, maybe reflect on these things a bit more, right? What is one thing, what is one thing I've been convicted by in God's word that I should be 
praying about, asking God to help me struggle through this. All right? Brothers and sisters, let's be serious about living holy lives for the glory of our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, whilst we come to before you to acknowledge you and to thank you that we live in grace, that no matter what sins that we have committed, we know that there is forgiveness in Christ if we trust in Jesus. Father, Father, help us for the sake of your holy name that you might not be blasphemed amongst the nations around our community. Mold us into people who are holy. By your Spirit, reveal to us our sins, which area that we have seen today that we might be most prone to falling into temptation. And Father, we pray that with your strength, you would help us to keep growing us, growing our holiness, so that the world will see us and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.